Well, the longer you wait, the harder it's going to be to diversify the firm. And I have to say, if you look at Silicon Valley and look at the at the numbers of across the companies that have made their diversity numbers public, they're pretty bad. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. When I came to this country 30 years ago, no one was talking about diversity. Now it is a buzzword. But for all the talk, how successful are our diversity training programs really? Especially in the Silicon Valley, have we achieved professional equality? To answer this question, I sat down with Professor Frank Dobin, Chair of Sociology at Harvard University and author of the critically acclaimed book, Inventing Equal Opportunity. Frank's work on diversifying the workplace focuses on developing an evidence-based approach to understand how and why businesses often remain segregated. In this podcast, Frank and I discuss the roots of the diversity problems and how better business diversity practices benefit everyone in the long run. It is a complicated issue affected by management strategies, promotion patterns, and years of systemic racism and segregation, but it's worth diving into. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Frank. Thanks for joining me today, this morning. I'm so looking forward to our conversation and learn so much from you. Well, thanks so much for having me, Christine. Uh, so I thought it'd be good for our listener to hear about your background a little bit, like why, what brought you to be interested in this particular subject that you are, you've been studying for many, many years. Well, I'd say there are a couple of things. Um, growing up, my parents were leftists, and, and when I was very small, I got dragged to a lot of civil rights demonstrations. And... Um, I, our discussions around the dinner table were often about um, inequality uh, in society. Some, some were about inequality in the workplace, and I, um, I, I became interested in the effects of the civil rights movement from a pretty early age. Um, I even in high school I had done projects on the effects of Reconstruction, for example after the Civil War, and I was just, have been fascinated by um, the progress we have made and the progress we haven't made over time. So it was just, it was always an interest. And in graduate school at Stanford in sociology, I began to study uh, organizational sociology, which is really the history and workings of management practices. And one of the things I found very striking is that um, many workplaces haven't made a lot of progress over time in actually promoting diversity, particularly in the best jobs. So it just became, that became a general interest of mine. And when I started studying what firms were doing to promote diversity, to initially to comply with equal opportunity laws, I was just struck by how lame the things they were doing seemed to be. And how, you know, I, I remember very well interviewing people in the Bay Area about the programs they had in place. And I would hear somebody who was so enthusiastic about their diversity training program. And I would just think, you know, this is the same program that 
when I get on an airplane next to a business person and I tell them I study this, they say, really, diversity training, that's such a load of crap. <laughs> so and so um, I just became, um, I, I find it super interesting that companies are doing all of these things, spending all of this money. And our research shows that a lot of what they do doesn't work. That is, it doesn't work if, if the goal is actually to promote diversity. So, which brought me to my next question. And with, you know, I feel like people have been talking about diversity for many, many years. I came to this country 30 years ago. I remember, maybe I was young, I did not really hear much about it, but I feel like the last 20 years people have been talking it. But now the intensity seems to be more for the last year or so. Uh, what, are, what, what did you learn from your research, what works and what doesn't work, and how do you make it work? Well, um, I would say the so so well. Just a bit about what my team does. Um, we've been collecting data from firms on what they do, what kinds of diversity practices they have, and we collect that longitudinally. We've done it for oh about eight hundred companies, about seven hundred universities. So we'll we will. Co- collect kind of life history of all their diversity programs and then merge those data with data from the federal government on workforce diversity. And what we usually look at in firms is the diversity of managers because those are the hardest jobs to diversify. And in universities and colleges, we usually look at the diversity of uh, the professoriate, so untenured professors and tenured professors. And... um, Across both of these big studies where we're setting lots of organizations over many years and actually looking at after a company puts in a particular kind of diversity training in the subsequent years, do they see more diversity among managers or do they not? So as we, that's, that's how we look at the question. We have a lot of data and we try to figure out on average what, what, what works, what doesn't work, what backfires. Um, and I would say the, that the big picture is that um, efforts to change individual level bias and discrimination have failed. So that includes things like diversity training, sexual harassment training, but it also includes interventions such as HR rules that are supposed to prevent people from acting on discrimination. So that would include things like job tests, performance evaluation scores. Um, Those, like a job test score, is supposed to force you as a manager to hire the person with the highest score, or at least to give people from different groups who have similar scores a fair shake. Uh, Performance rating systems are supposed to stop you from exercising bias when you're making pay and promotion decisions because you have a hard number to look at. You have the, mm-hmm. the last year's performance rating or the history of performance ratings. So what we see is that people react negatively generally when, when you try to train away bias because people don't think they're biased. Mm-hmm. So they don't usually want to be there in the first place. No, you know, if you ask people, are you biased? They'll say, no, are you kidding mm-hmm. me? Uh-uh, never. So, and even when they score very high on an implicit bias test, a test that shows them they're biased, 
they say, well, I would never act on it, even. And that's just, I just hold the same stereotypes that anybody else holds. So, mm-hmm. so that kind of training doesn't change people. And it also doesn't, in the firm, lead to increased diversity. And these rules that are supposed to prevent people from acting on their biases, like rules about you have to use performance ratings or job tests to choose people for promotions or or to, um, in the case of performance ratings, choose um, set salaries or bonuses. They don't work either um, to promote diversity. The reason appears to be that people react negatively when you try to control their behavior by telling them, okay, you can't choose your team. You have to use a job test to choose who, who gets this job. So people find a way to get around those mm-hmm. kinds of rules. Um, so these kind of blaming the managers for the problem, that tends not to work. Um, what, what, what firms do that is effective is um, they look at their hiring systems, their retention systems, mentoring, promotion systems, um, and they look for places where they could be improved. So I, I think... The things that, in in our research, the things that really drive um, increases in opportunity for different groups are mostly commonsensical changes to existing systems to just make them more open and fair to people. So take recruitment. Most big companies begin by, well, small companies begin by recruiting at the alma maters of the people who founded the company. And if white people founded the country, company, which is often the case, they'll go to the go to schools that are majority white. Um, and then companies will say, "We we recruit at schools that don't discriminate, so we don't discriminate." But there are schools that are majority black, like historically black colleges. And unless you recruit every time you recruit at a at a majority white school, you're already you're also recruiting at a historically black college and also at a Hispanic serving university like the University of New Mexico, where there are a lot of Hispanics. Mm-hmm. You're not really opening recruitment to everybody because you're not going to the places where you would find more black and Hispanic recruits. So, um, so like if you if you think of each part of the career system, like how does the mentoring program work? Or how does the management training program work? Or how do work-life programs operate? If you think of each of these as an area where you could, con- you could investigate your own system and see if it could be made more inclusive, the firms that do that actually see pretty significant increases um, in managerial diversity just across all groups. So I feel like it's not that hard to figure out what what you what firms ought to be doing, mm-hmm. but they're they're focusing on trying to change what individual managers do, their biases or their discrimination, rather than just changing the systems. The systems that get people hired and lead them through their careers. Right. I think also the leadership or the people who are managing the changing the system need to be aware that it is something that they want to uh, have the diversity at all levels too. And 
the, having the law sometimes it helps push people certain direction. And then I think having the right board who cannot tell the management <clears throat> you need to have more diversity um, in the system. But, you know, I remember 30 years ago, my first job at the Fortune 500 company, one of my, I was, um, I remember I was telling my supervisor at that time, I feel like everybody here looks so similar. And the response that I got, you know, I was 20 years old. I did not know anybody that wants to respond. And then she said, like, we like to hire people who are like us. It's not so much about the, you know, the skin color. It's also the cultural, I think. Mm. And I think that is kind of people, you know, I don't know. I just feel like it's not, you know, if you tell them that they're being biased, it's not like, no, we're just lo- looking for somebody who think like us. And when people think like us, they tend to be from the similar culture because that's what it is. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's a wonderful book by a business school professor, Lauren Rivera at Kellogg at the business school at Northwestern called Pedigree. That's about how consultancies, banks, law firms choose people, what their recruiters are looking for. And what they look for is fit. That is, they'll fit. This is a person who will fit with the culture. And so it's true that, you know, increasingly um, firms are not choosing just on the basis of race and ethnicity. But if you if you if you choose people who have the same kind of cultural values, the same approach, who went to the same colleges, you do tend to end up with disproportionately um, white people if that's what you have in the firm already. Right. So I oftentimes hear also when you know the large company, you have all the HR, and you know you have a lot of the resources, you have hundreds of people, but you know, we work with a lot of startups and how can a small team make sure that they, their team they have uh, is diverse so that going down there, you know, when, as they scale, they don't have to be scrambled. Like, oh my God, you know, we look at our team, there's everybody look at like us. Well, I think one thing to keep in mind is that if, whether you're in a small firm or a large firm, Many people get their jobs through network contacts one way or another, either through a, either through like a, an alumni group from a college or university, a friendship group, sometimes a religious group. Um, it, some studies show that most people get fine jobs through some kind of network. So what that means is if you if if you have a startup team that that's three white men. Um, because people tend to have networks that include mostly people like them, if you if you if you hire through the snowball method, you're going to have a big white snowball after a pretty short period of time. Um, so it means that from the very beginning, firms need to a startup needs to to think. How would we get an, a different kind of talent than than is already here? What would we do? And sometimes it means looking around. I mean, if you're in Silicon Valley, think about San Jose State. Look at the schools that have larger Latinx populations and recruit a couple of people at those schools. the The beauty of doing that is that then you'll tap into another network mm-hmm. and you'll start if you're if you're using the system right you'll start to recruit people through 
the network of that person who went to San Jose State or, or whatever the school is where you have identified a, a more diverse population. Um, and I, I, it is true that, you know, if, you, if you're using network hiring, um, you, can, you can start to build snowballs of different colors. Right. And I think oftentimes in a startup, when recruiting, if you hire outside recruiting firm, it can be really expensive, the HR. So this seems the fastest and the cheapest way is through your network. Yeah. And even big companies just make a disproportionate number of hires through networks. So one of the, one of the um, things big companies can do is that they can create um, formal referral incentive programs so that as, as companies scale, as they get bigger, often like entry-level workers for clerical jobs are kind of diverse. Um, but um, as the firm is hiring people, the, the network hires are the cousin of the CEO or the nephew of the CFO, the network hires are not the cousin of the receptionist. But a referral incentive program can like let everybody in the company know it's not just the CEO who gets to refer people. We want you to refer people. Mm-hmm. And um, just putting in a referral program can really help a company to leverage what diversity they have in whatever positions they have um, to make the company more diverse. We find that that's super effective. I mean, on top of going to historically black colleges and and Mm -hmm. Hispanic serving institutions. I remember I work in a company that has a referral system that they give the incentive for anybody who refers somebody and then they get monetary uh, uh, reward. And Mm -hmm. on top of that, a dinner reward okay, that you can take. Nice. That. So I think I, I see that how it works really well because it, it does spread the wealth that everybody can refer their network to the company. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Um, going back to a startup, oftentimes, do you, you know, when the startup started with, you know, usually two founders, they tend to be friend of each other. They met in college or they met at work. And then it, I guess my question is sometimes for pragmatic, practical purpose, they kind of think about, let's worry about diversity later. And then just let's make sure that all the work that needs to be done just need to be done with whatever that we know. Do you see there's a drawback of with that approach? Well, the longer you wait, the harder it's going to be to diversify the firm. And I have to say, if you look at Silicon Valley and look at the at the numbers of, across the companies that have made their diversity numbers public, they're pretty bad. And they don't re- the numbers don't reflect, for example, 
the number of computer science degrees going to blacks in the U.S. or the number of computer science degrees going to Latinx people in the U.S. The tech firms are generally way behind where they should be if they just kind of gave a, a, a fair shake to people who get a B.A. in C.S. who are black or who are Latinx. So um, I, I, I do think that uh, startups have to begin early and it's so another thing to keep in mind is like people like to hire them for their friends in a small firm because they think they know them and they can count on them and they think they won't have a problem. But, um, you know, the fact is people sometimes have problems when they hire their friends. It's not <laughs> always, um, it's not always beautiful when you hire your friend. But, um, if you, if you do careful vetting yourself, there's no reason to think you couldn't hire somebody from a different group who you've never met before and have that be very, very effective. So, and, you know, there are a lot of people who would like to work in startups these days. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, when, when uh, you know, often I'll talk to like an audience of people who are in small and medium firms and, I'll, you know, I just say just it's it doesn't won't take you a lot of extra energy to try to look beyond your little friendship group and see if you can't uh, tap into a different network that might also net you terrific people from another group who you don't know about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially when you have a job to offer. I think there's a lot more people who wants to talk to you. You bet. <laughs> what you're mentioning earlier about, you know, um, hiring from university and oftentimes you the founders graduate from certain university oftentimes if they're white they graduate from school that tend to be uh predominantly a lot of you know same color uh university i mean you know mostly white university um and as you know you see as the reality you know i used to work for an investment bank and i know a lot of consulting firm they hire people from certain university because of, you know, the IVs, all that credential, the state school, like nobody wants to hire from the state school if you're interested in a consulting firm. I mean, there's, they hire a few. Um, so credential, obviously, in everybody's mind. And how do you break that system that, you know, it's not just based on the per where that person graduated? Because somebody can go to, say, a state school because of the family background, financial situation that they go there doesn't mean they're not amazing but you rely on some uh, university like say harvard like they did the screening for us that makes my life easier so how do you break that cycle you know i think it's a very unfortunate uh, feature of investment banking consulting elite law firms that they recruit so narrowly Because they also, you know, they're get they're they're getting a kind of narrow set of perspectives, a narrow kind of training, and a pretty narrow set of backgrounds. Now it's true that the Ivies now um, they have they have broad scholarship programs, so they ha they do have a lot of people from different kinds of backgrounds. But you're if you look at a big state university like the University of Michigan or um, University of California at Berkeley, they have as many top students as you'll find at Columbia or Princeton or Harvard. They just have more diversity. And that is, they have more diversity in, um, like, 
uh, SAT scores going in and more diversity in, um, in grades going in. But that doesn't mean there aren't just as many top people they could be hiring at those schools. And I think um, for in the case of investment banking or consulting, for example, um, if, firm, if any firm that systematically went to other kinds of schools, so they weren't competing with all the same um, investment banks, for example, they're going to do better because Berkeley, UCLA, Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois. I mean, the top, the top, the flagship schools in all these states have tons of very talented people who aren't, and all the investment banks are competing for the same hundred people at Harvard. <laughs> so I think it just makes sense that they would, they would recruit beyond the Ivies. But also this, you know, what I said about Ca- California, it's true at of um howard and morehouse and xavier it's true of historically black colleges too spellman um you've got top talent at those schools and if you were the one uh investment bank recruiting there nobody's going to be competing for those people right you almost uh, i can see but maybe the investment banking now is changing i mean i was in that field many many years ago do you think I don't, uh, from what I've seen, it hasn't been changing. From what I've seen, they're doing exactly what they used to do. I know because all of our students are, uh, are interviewing there every year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to as the, in a startup, um, you, it, it's sometimes you, ha- you have the diversity at the different level. Uh, they, they have more the technician. They they might they might claim that hey we have a diversity because when you count mm. the number of people we have I don't know twenty percent thirty percent hey it's not so bad uh, but if you look at the management level there's not much diversity there and you can hide behind that and how do you change so that there's diversity in every level? Um, well, one thing that firms can do is they can open up their supervisory and management training systems and also their tuition reimbursement system so that the people they have who are terrific technicians who have the possibility of um, becoming crack programmers or managers, those people have a chance to move up within the firm. So, and one of the, one of the reasons... Uh, skills supervisory management training programs are um, pay for themselves within firms is that they stop turnover. Mm-hmm. So because if you invest a little bit by training somebody in a new programming language or training them in some supervisory skills, how to use the HR information system or something like that, you 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 signal that you'd like them to stay around and you're planning to try to help them move up. And, you know, one of the big problems with, um, with retention, particularly of people of color, is that they, feel, they look above them and they see nobody like themselves and they're, they're just um, they're looking around for jobs where there might, they might be able to find a company where there are more people like themselves in management. So that investment, um, because turnover costs are huge in most firms, just training people, get, getting them up to speed. You get some people who, who don't work out, who you have to fire. So um, firms have a real interest in 
stemming turnover, but and the same things that can help firms to um, develop talent and move people up, like mentoring programs and skill training, are the things that uh, keep them from turning over. How important from your research the mentoring program is in terms of help somebody grow, especially somebody who does not have the network that oftentimes, you know, if you're from a certain background, certain network, you don't have the network of more, you know, if all your friends are CEOs and you, you, you know, you go for lunch, you always talk to CEOs. But if your friends are, tend to be not CEOs, you never really talk to C, CEO level kind of conversation. Well, I would say um, within firms, there's a, there's also a kind of pernicious problem, and that is that jobs still remain pretty segregated within many firms. Like, so the programmers in a given firm, you know, if you, and you can see this if you look at Silicon Valley data the, from the companies that do post it, or if you look at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission data on uh, firms in the electronics, the tech, the tech industry. Um, jobs tend to be pretty segregated within firms. So like the administrative assistants tend to be women. Uh, people do, in logistics tend to be um, African-American or Latinx. People in program programming tend to be, um, and management tend to be white and Asian-American. So even within the firm, like you might be a Latinx person in a big tech firm, but you don't know anybody who's a programmer. And so there's nobody who could say to you, have you thought of taking a programming course? Have you thought of like becoming a coder for the firm? Because you've got the skills to do it. You don't know anybody who could say that to you because those aren't the people you interact with. So one thing, one reason mentoring, so in, in our research in, in, corp, in the corporate world, as in the university world, mentoring is just one of the most effective things at helping to move people up. And the reason it's effective is that firms, like if you, if you think of a startup that doesn't have a mentoring program, do they not have mentoring? Of course they have mentoring. I mean, every junior person is looking for somebody to help them. And every senior person is frankly looking for junior people who they could help, who, you know, who would maybe teach them something new um, in, uh, from the from their recent college education, for example, m- might connect them with other networks. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, everybody is interested in mentoring relationships, but they tend to be within group if you don't encourage them through a formal program that matches people. And what What's most effective is a mentoring program that covers everybody in the company, that everybody is is offered, um, and that doesn't match mentors and protégés on race or sex or ethnicity, but matches them on interests so that um, the protégés get a mentor who's probably from another group if the protégé is a person of color because most of the mentors available are from another group because mm-hmm. in most companies, um, most managers are uh, are white men. And, um, and the mentors themselves often end up with protégés who are from another group. Whereas if you leave mentoring to, to chance, if you leave mentoring to self-matches, 
for a variety of reasons, you just don't get, a, and part of it is that the jobs are segregated. So, you know, it's one reason you need to have mentoring programs across departments. But um, part of it is that people tend to self-select when they're when they're choosing proteges. They tend to choose people like themselves. They tend, you know, they like to say, "Ah, you know, I chose him. He reminds me of myself when I was twenty-five. Well, that's not a good basis for for creating diversity through a, a mentoring system, right? And I think also for certain people, it can be intimidating to choose certain person to be their mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. Can can go can work both ways, right? It's yeah, say more um, about that. Yeah, so I I like that. You know, I think that's so actionable, and it's not that it doesn't take much of coordination in having no. a uh, a mentoring program within an organization. I think no, uh, it doesn't. And also, it create a culture in a company that everybody's in it together, which yeah. I think is good for the company. Last question I have before I let you go. I know we can talk forever about this. Um, biases. You know, it's all rooted from a lot of times from biases. And I think, like you said, nobody wants to admit that they have biases, but I think everybody has biases. It's part of how humans survive. Uh, how do you address, help people to kind of be conscious of their bias? And so that they can do something about it rather than being so denying about, I don't have biases. Well, I, I think that what we need to do, and this is based on a lot of social science research, is we need to change what workplaces look like to change who's in positions in order to change people's biases. So biases are stereotypes about who should be in what kinds of roles, who should be in what kinds of jobs. And that's and they partly come about because there is this sort of segregation where you have logistics being black people and coding being Asian Americans and white people. So, and how do you change those stereotypes about who should be where? Um, the disappointing thing about anti-bias training research, and we've we have results dating back to the '40s that are very clear on this. The disappointing thing is you can't really change the stereotypes that are in people's heads. It's just not going to work. So you can't change them through training. So, and I think it's understandable. I mean, the stereotypes we have are built up over a lifetime of observing the world and experiences in the world. Um, and, you know, I wish, I wish there were evidence that we could really permanently change them through an hour or a day or a month of training, but there's just no evidence that we can. But we know also, dating back to research in the 1940s, that if you put two people together working side by side as equals on the same project, and you leave them there for six months, their bias, and they're people from different groups, their biases toward the other group begin to go away because they start to see the other person as like themselves. So in the, the first natural experiment in, in, um, in this realm in, during World War II, um, black and white platoons were put together, not by design, but because of the expediences, expediencies of war, 
um, Dwight, General Dwight Eisenhower needed to have full companies. And so he had to put, he lost so many troops in Europe that he had to put white and black platoons working next to each other. And where that happened, and it was just chance that it happened, some places white platoons that that were decimated were replaced by black platoons, some places they were replaced by other white platoons, just by chance. And where they were replaced by black platoons, and you had white, whites and blacks working next to one another, white animosity toward blacks plummeted. So, and and whites changed their ideas about whether they wanted wanted to work next to blacks. So whites that ha- didn't have this multiracial experience remain very racist and segregated, or, or and, belie- and believers in segregation. Whereas the whites that had this experience, their views just completely changed, and the views of blacks changed as well. They they came away with with less racial animosity toward whites. So we've known for decades that that is the best way to change stereotypes and biases and also to reduce racial animosity. But um, firms haven't really taken that message to heart and tried to make sure that work groups are integrated. And I feel like that's the way we need to, that's where we need to go to change bias. I feel like we need to change the workplace to reduce bias, we, but we just know that we so far have been unsuccessful at changing bias as a way to change the workplace. Is it because the financial incentive was not there to kind of force people to change? Change is hard, and they feel like if you know everything is fine, why should I change it? And so, um, the uh, Nobel Prize winning. Um, economist Gary Becker had a book in 1957 on the economics of discrimination where he argued that discrimination would go away because it's inefficient, because there is, a, there is an incentive to hire people who other people won't hire um, or who other people are not trying to hire because you'll be able to pay them less. Mm. So if you believe Becker, um, since 1957, I mean, his theory has been well known. Firms have known that they had a financial incentive to hire people from groups that are disadvantaged. I don't think the financial incentive is making a difference. I think people are more... So I, as a sociologist, I think people are less rational than the economists would have us think. And mm-hmm. I think that that group of affinity is one of the things that drives people's behavior and decision-making. So just as in the startup where people want to hire people from their, even if it's not their friend from a fraternity, they want to hire somebody who's five years behind them but in the same fraternity because they know what they'll be like, they think. They know Mm. what culture they come from. Well, I I think we see that people have very very strong um, biases toward others who they think are, are like themselves. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, but, unfortunately. Yeah. But you can, you know, the way to the way to get people in your firm to think of people from other racial groups as like themselves is to have them work next side right. by side with somebody from another racial group. I think when you bring people into your life, then you reduce you increase the 
the diversity of story. Because I think sometimes when you hear about stereotypes from other or your experience, it's a single story, but you don't know the whole community and you assume the whole community just behave like what that one experience that what you have. I think that's, it's hard to have that if you never interact with them. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's, I mean, that's exactly the sociological insight. You're, you're an honorary sociologist for today. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us your your learning, your research, uh, and your insight. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And, um, and thank you for doing the podcast series. I, I've learned a bunch from, um, from listening to chunks of several of them. So exciting. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.